You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Maybe we can turn now to a few questions that will kind of allow you to speak to some of the regional or national experiences, the the sort of toolkit that you've been uh, helping to adapt from your own perspective. So, Governor Antoine, um, you know, we hear a lot of discussion in the climate space about the particular challenges of small island developing states. You already touched on them. And... um, really the fact that they are on the front lines of, of climate and you talk about you know their contribution in terms of emissions, but the impact is disproportionate and, and it being an existential question for many in, in um, places like the Caribbean, but not exclusively other small islands in the Pacific and elsewhere. Maybe you could just share for us um, a few of what I think are very path-breaking um, thinking measures that have emerged um, within the Caribbean some of the local regional initiatives that, that the ECCB has been been championing in this space, new toolkits that are kind of gaining traction in the multilateral development banks that we can hopefully see being um, replicated and expanded into other places where applicable. Thanks, Christine. So after the monster storms in 2017, the Caribbean community, a collection of Caribbean countries, took a decision, declared its ambition to become the first climate resilient region in the world. It's a big ambition, but given where we live, we have to do something. So since then, several of our countries are now embarked on national resilience strategies, and they're getting support from the World Bank, for example. Of course, Canada is a big contributor to that, uh, to build that out. The second area is in the area of fiscal resilience. And this is where ECCB has been playing a very important role in advocating with our members for fiscal, what some people call fiscal rules, fiscal responsibility frameworks, but what I prefer to call fiscal resilience frameworks, which is essentially building in a mechanism that allows you to, as I tell the countries, to embark on conquer cyclical fiscal policy when there's a downturn in the economy. What you, when you watch what happened after the global financial crisis in the Caribbean, the Caribbean entered into a deep recession. And part of the reason for that was not just what was going on on the external front, but at a time when the government should have been spending more to cushion the effects on the vulnerable, they were actually spending less. How do I know? Because I was one of them as a financial secretary then doing exactly that. Not the very smartest thing to do, but without fiscal space, we had no options. So we, we make the point for building fiscal buffers so that the governments have that fiscal uh, space to operate counter-cyclical fiscal policy for fiscal resilience. Two countries so far in my uh, eight-country group have already gone that way, and three others are in serious conversations. I'm hoping to get to critical number five and then get everybody <laughs> over the line. It's going to take some doing, but we're committed to doing that. Another area is, is in the area of financial resilience. Uh, so this is the use of 
risk transfer mechanisms. At the moment, two-thirds of all losses in the Caribbean are uninsured. Two-thirds uninsured. So that is where, for example, the Caribbean Cadastral Risk Insurance Facility becomes important. Canada has been a very important contributor to that. Um, so far, this was established in 2007, the first multi-country catastrophe risk pool in the world. Uh, we've now expanded to, I think, 22 countries, uh, including three countries in Central America. Over that period of time, we've disbursed in excess of 150 million US dollars, and we do so within 14 days of an event. So it's been a success. The challenge is that we need to scale that up, because like I mentioned, two-thirds of all losses are currently uninsured. So that's an area where we are looking to expand. Uh, but it, it's a combination of fiscal space and also the requisite support to build capital. Another area is the use of disaster-linked clauses in our loan contracts, what in the Caribbean we commonly call hurricane clauses. And you played a very important role in your, your time at the World Bank in working on that. Essentially, what we say is this. In the event of a major disaster, there ought to be a standstill for a specified period of time on debt servicing to allow the country to recover and then having recovered to resume servicing. Because typically what happens after a disaster is that you have to reallocate resources that you don't have. The promised pledges seldom arrive, or if they arrive, they're not in time. And in the meantime, your capacity to grow and recover is compromised. So invest in re recovery and then resume. We now have that, those clauses in Grenada. We have them in St. Lucia. We have them in Barbados. Uh, and I know one or two other countries are going to be doing that. Uh, Canada was very important in the G7 in encouraging that at the level of the Paris Club and in the G7 discussion. And I'm grateful for that because, again, we feel that is important to help us build up what, we, what we're doing. Very quickly on the ECCB side, we continue to encourage mitigation in respect of renewables in our energy mix. At the moment, only 8% of our electricity come from, comes from uh, renewables. And we've said we need, to, we need to do more. So at the central bank, our small campus, we've set a target to be carbon neutral by 2022. And by June of this year, we'll be 60% there. We made the investment and we begin to see the results. Not just in our bottom line, but to be honest with you, the motivation is to set a moral example and to have the moral authority to make the argument to larger countries and larger emitters, you need to do more. If we are small countries that do our part, shame on you. And I'm, I make no apologies for saying that. It's a matter of life survival for us. Shame on you. You need to do more. Do your part to ensure that we can protect our planet. So I'll leave it at that. That's great. No, that's... Did anybody learn anything new in that little... Uh, it's, um, it's, it's been... Sadly, crises have spurred a lot of uh, the policy innovation and the, and the adjustments that we're seeing and the recognition of the need to develop new fiscal and financial tools. So it's, it's uh, lots of hard work and, and investment on uh, the part of many great thinkers to, to get to this point. And we need to continue to spur innovation um, uh, in this in this space as we go as we go forward um, maybe from the Moroccan point of view so a number of people have mentioned to me the famous uh, Marrakesh pledge 
So the Moroccan Capital Market Authority um, launched that initiative, and I wonder if you could just share with the with the audience here what that what that pledge is all about, and um, whether you think it's going to be adequate um, in terms of the regulatory and legislative framework that that's uh, still coming um, in your in your region and in in, in Morocco. So we're keen to learn about the Marrakesh pledge. Okay. Well, then. It, uh, it all started during COP22, and I was, uh, we understood that that COP22 was not only the COP for Africa, but also the COP that would uh, afford, uh, that will talk about financing and how to finance all these uh, uh, projects that uh, will to mitigate climate risk and how to attract funds. And... Uh, uh, not all, I mean, in, on the African continent. So we 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 decided together with other we, with other regulators and exchanges from the continent to uh, to launch this Mar initiative called the Marrakech Pledge that was signed during COP22. In fact, it's a call for all African regulators and exchanges to act collectively and individually to build that an African partnership. At foster, aimed at fostering green capital markets in Africa uh, with uh, try, uh, trying to with, uh, enable the development of an effective ecosystem to support the establishment of green capital markets, promote Africa as a prominent region for green financial markets, uh, enable other African-led in, uh, innovative climate finance initiatives both globally or for Africa, and also create a venue for exchange knowledge and experience sharing among exchange, African exchange regulators. And what we have done by, by all committing, committing to date, uh, 23 countries have signed. Latest uh, one uh, uh, joined the, the pledge is Mauritius uh, exchange, and the regulators joined recently the the, because it, it's it's a commitment to act, and it has been, I think, very useful for all uh, regulators and changes of the continent. Uh, because we ha we uh, by building, for instance, when we build this first guideline on green bonds, trying to explain uh, all the challenges to give. Uh, the uh, an international definition of what is green, what could, what is green, uh, explain the the procedures to uh, to to issue green bonds. Uh, also explain the the use of uh, um, external auditors that will uh, uh, that will assess that the project is green. I mean all this. Uh, uh, all these details to uh, uh, for for an issuer to be able to come with with a green bond. Uh, well, these uh, these guidelines has through the market pledge been used by other regulators, and that we have helped and have uh, have enabled not only issues in Morocco of green bonds, but also in other African countries and some countries markets that we have helped through this pledge are advancing as in terms of number of e e issues. It's also has enabled us in Africa to, to reinforce our capital markets and to 
to explain that capital markets are, are very useful uh, to finance the economy. It's not only a question of, of a few top uh, uh, comp national companies uh, listed, but it can, uh, it can attract, uh, it can finance many kinds of projects. And uh, it helped attract, uh, to attract new investors mm -hmm. uh, looking for, for a more ethical, for more sustainability uh, uh, in, in the market. So, and this, uh, this pledge is, is going on. We, we, uh, we had that, that first uh, uh, very important uh, well, uh, conference with a workshop with Toronto Center and uh, uh, that uh, uh, was uh, organized for, for the members of the, uh, of the Marrakesh Pledge. And uh, at the end, we had, uh, well, a white paper, which we, we, we released and uh, we published on, uh, on our experiences and uh, recommendations and perspectives on, uh, on developing green capital markets in Africa. Great. Thanks. I, I want to come back to the issue of blue bonds, green bonds, and, and the promise that we all see, but also maybe I'll come back and ask each of you to comment on some of the impediments. Why, why are we not seeing faster take up of some of these instruments? And uh, so maybe you can think about that and I'll come back to you. Um, Mr. Nyong, uh, from the African Development Bank's perspective, there's also been uh, some new initiatives. Um, the African Financial Alliance on Climate Change. Like every good initiative, there's a good acronym, the AFAC, is that what you call it? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe you could share a little bit about what, what that's all about. And um, maybe more specifically, I think the, the audience would really welcome hearing your, your views on the specific actions that financial sector supervisors can take to encourage this shift in financial sector portfolios. Um, again, it gets to the point about how do we accelerate um, this effort given the pace at which we're seeing um, climate uh, change and you mentioned yourself the need for resilience, adaptation, all of these things. So what can, we, what can we do or what are you thinking about in terms of your relationship with financial sector supervisors to really encourage the shift um, of financial sector portfolios towards low carbon, climate resilient investments? Yeah, thanks uh, so much. Um, all research, all reports show that, you know, that 75% uh, or more of the resources that are needed to address climate change will come from the private sector that everyone agrees. But we realize that in Africa, the private sector, there is not so much the big multinationals. We have the financial institutions largely, and then the small and medium scale enterprises. So the trick then was, how do we get these financial institutions to put money together to support climate action in Africa? Uh, the first is that uh, there are opportunities for which they don't know or are not fully aware of. I'll give you an instance. Last year, no, 2018, we had $11 trillion divested from fossil fuel, which means this money has to go somewhere. The financial institutions can position themselves to receive such monies and do something better. On the African continent, the countries have submitted nationally determined contributions 
when you look at it, it's $3 trillion by 2030. And we say this is not $3 trillion in sunk cost. This is investment opportunity in Africa. This is a market, you know, that they have a $3 trillion market. This part of this market will need to be financed by local capital, domestic resources. And we have pension funds, insurances, central banks, name them, sitting on trillions of dollars, not doing much with it. So we thought it was important to bring this together. That's how we created the Africa Financial Alliance on Climate Change, by bringing all these owners and purveyors of capital on the continent to one platform. The issues of the commercial bank cannot be addressed by the commercial banks, probably by the central banks. And the central banks cannot do much without the ministers of finance. So it has a good steering committee chaired by Lord Nixon and the finance minister of Rwanda, because we see that Rwanda is doing quite a lot and it has several other things that it is doing. So that's where we are. Right now we're building awareness amongst our, those financial institutions. Many of them don't, like I mentioned earlier, can't really relate with climate change. It's now that we're doing this sensitization their eyes are beginning to be open to say, wow, I think I can see myself here. And I really look forward to a partnership with the Toronto Centre because this is really your bread and butter, that we can work together to uh, create that awareness, build that capacity within African financial institutions. And for us, what is it that we want to see the uh, financial institutions do, either the regulators or the supervisors? One is insistence on the assessment of risks and disclosure of these risks, whether they are uh, climate risk, static, or uh, transition risk, all the risks that are associated with climate change need to be put. We need to see stronger regulatory environments. We lack this largely in Africa. We have conflicting policies. You have on one hand, the Minister of Finance that says they want to get a lot more money through imposing high uh, excise duties, customs and excise duties. That way you are hindering the ability to import renewable energy technologies. How can we have differential loan pricing, other products, for instance, that can come on board? So I think it is absolutely very important that we begin to disclose. And I know that this disclosure can bring a risk to itself. And so I don't... I'm not one of those that believes because it worked in Japan, it must work in Burundi in Africa. We need to have tailored solutions to each of our countries, know exactly what they are. That's why in the alliance, finance ministers are in. Because what the finance minister will do in, in Togo might be different from what needs to be done in Morocco. You know, so each of them will do things that are very peculiar to each of those regions. So I think that's where I'll stop now. Okay, that's great. Do we want to come back on this question of some of the interesting new financial uh, tools out there, the green bonds, blue bonds, experiences that you're seeing? Um, do you anticipate more take up with those types of instruments uh, going forward? What, what has been your own direct experience on, um, on some of those? And maybe I'll start with you, uh, Neza. Okay, well, you, one has to understand that in our emerging markets, we have to face two, two challenges at the same time. First, the first challenge is to explain 
and convinced that capital markets are there to finance projects and investments, not only the banking industry. You know, we are banking-based uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 financing system. And uh, up to now, capital markets uh, uh, maybe uh, contribute to less than 10% of the to finance less than 10 percent of the investment so this is the first challenge whenever there's a project it goes to banks to to be financed and the second one is to explain what is a green what is a, uh, how to do to issue a green bond so on and uh, i i think it is becoming su successful we had uh, we had very interesting uh, uh, green bond issues. The first one was uh, was uh, issued by the uh, Morocco Sustainable Agency. Uh, I mean, uh, they wanted to issue bond. I said, "Well, you you all green." So they say, "Oh, it's okay." So how do we do? So this is uh, so they, they were helped by our guidelines, and uh, and it was a great uh, success. Followed by by banks. It takes more time for banks because if they have to issue green bonds in order to either finance or refinance uh, 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 green uh, or climate-related uh, uh, projects. So there's a follow-up. There's more. So it's. Uh, I think uh, uh, it is becoming. It just take more time first to to explain what capital markets are for and to and also to raise awareness uh, and and explain what is what are these new instruments. What is Required, what are the new risks? Uh, whereas we uh, investors, and especially institutional investors locally, are uh, are, are really uh, asking for more for more uh, of these uh, new uh, instruments. So uh, just take time to 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 explain uh, and uh, until the decision is made by a company to issue. A, a green bond and not only a normal. Hope you're enjoying listening to this Toronto Centre podcast. We're working hard to bring our listeners topical content in today's fast-changing supervisory landscape. If you like this content, visit our website to learn more about our highly rated international programs covering banking, securities, and insurance and pension supervision. Enjoy the rest of our podcast. Timothy, did you have any comment on? Well, uh, just to say, after 10 odd years of having that conversation, we've not gotten very far. Mm. Very disappointing. There are several objective reasons. I mean, in our region, uh, certainly money and capital markets are shallow. I mean, in the US, I don't know what the number is in Canada, but in the US, one in two citizens are invested in the US stock mm. market. And there's, people get wealth from investing in the market. In my region, it's one in 20. A lot of people are not exposed. And we are now on a mission to try to help them to understand that this is a potential source of wealth creation. So it's as basic as that. Then you have the issue where many of our countries do not have investment grade ratings. So in terms of a, a private sector coming in, so I agree with the professor, the private sector needs to get involved. I agree with you. But getting the private sector involved in that perceived high-risk environment is a challenge. So we're doing a number of things now in terms of obviously improving fiscal resilience, but also looking at the legal and regulatory frameworks. But one 
example of where I think we are making progress is with geothermal development. Remember I told you only about 8% of our electricity right now comes from renewables in the Eastern Caribbean. What is happening now is that using support from some of our development partners, grant resources, we are proving the, the, the resource, the geothermal resource. So in a couple of our countries, we've acted like Dominica, for example, gone in and proved the resource. That then opens up the possibility for the private sector coming because you have the risk of the project. You know that the resource exists and you can go in and you can raise financing. Hitherto, they either were not coming at all or the very brave ones were, signed, were, 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 were put in very skewed arrangements where all of the risks, because they felt they were taking all of the risks, all of the benefits were going to the investor. And uh, in many cases, they were not even raising the money. So you were stuck with a, an agreement and a very one-sided agreement. Now, by the risking the, 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 the resource, by proving that it exists, the government can then enter into a more equitable um, arrangement uh, with the private sector. So I'm hopeful that in the next couple of years, we will actually begin to see that, uh, starting with, for example, Dominica, because I think they're the furthest advance in that area. Anything to add to, to these comments? Well, I think it's... Um... The governor has mentioned the issue of risk. We've tried to deal with this issue of risk for a while. For instance, we know that uh, solar energy is being, you know, produced at about one US cents per kilowatt hour in certain regions. But when it comes to Africa, everyone puts a very high risk, very high premium on it, mm -hmm. and it becomes very expensive. So for us at the African Development Bank, we believe that certain things happen, that uh, fiscal capital goes to where social capital exists. Do we have the right infrastructure to attract people to come in? Do we have the right policies? You know, private sector does not just come in, like you've said, it's very timid. Private capital is very timid. It comes out where there's stability and so on. So we have put in quite a lot in the risking instruments, guarantees, and so on, just to make sure that the private sector comes in, whether it's partial credit, partial risk guarantees, and so on, to attract the private sector. Because we believe this is the space for the private sector. We want to increasingly use public money that we have to create this enabling environment, like the governor said, to bring in the private sector into this space. So we have created several instruments, several instruments to do this. The other thing that we think is also important, let me note here, is that most people don't understand some of these emerging technologies. And because of that, they put very high premiums on them. And most African countries really can't negotiate these contracts, this agreement. Mm -hmm. So we've established what we call the Africa Legal Support Facility crack team lawyers, if we don't have, we recruit and make them available for African countries to enable them to negotiate these contracts, these deals with on these newer technologies that are coming up now. Thanks. Okay, we're going to turn it back over and see if there's any questions from the, from the floor. And I'll look over here because I'm kind of looking this way, but yes, please. 
Hey, my name is Varun. I work for the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, first of all, Governor, I love that you mentioned uh, fiscal rules and fiscal discipline as a fiscal policy wonk. Uh, that made me really happy. Uh, I guess uh, two quick questions for you. Um, first was around, uh, you briefly mentioned disaster financing and hurricane clauses and stuff. Uh, what's your experience been like uh, building out the market and raising credit um, in the catastrophe bond market? And if you see any challenges in uh, approaching disaster financing and dis disaster recovery with the catastrophe bond market. And the second question is a bit more gentle and broad, and I guess this is something uh, Professor Nyan could answer too, but uh, around uh, trying to build a consensus and coordinating policy across you know, a divergent range of geographies, financial markets, and economies. What's your general approach in doing that? Because I, I, I would think that's a significant challenge. Great question. Good. Well, it's good to have a policy, fiscal policy wonk in the house. <laughs> There's uh, two of you now. <laughs> well, uh, but it's for a good cause. It's for development, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so our experience is very limited with CAD bonds. The, the experience is limited to what we did at CRIP. So full disclosure, I chair CRIP, SBC. And we did raise a CAD bond through the World Bank, Treasury Department, uh, a few years ago, as part of our reinsurance cover. So typically, we, you know, we take a certain portion and we go up to reinsurance, and we decided to split reinsurance and CAD bond. Um, there is a market for it, uh, and, and, and we found it useful. But I think at the broader level, our region is still trying to grapple with that possibility. As a first step, most of several of our countries, not most, several of our countries, Jamaica, for example, have now started, and you would know this from your time at the World Bank, disaster risk financing strategies, of which CAD bond is, is one to try to then position the country to be able to go out and tap into the capital markets. But you have to remember, in many of these, Jamaica is an exception, but in many of these countries, they have little or no access to the international capital markets, partly because they're small and they have no, no investment grade rating. So that is going to be a, a closed door unless we can sort of pool the arrangement, pool, come up with some kind of pool using leverage in the World Bank uh, and the Treasury Department there. And that is something we are in discussions about. Good. And the broader question about, uh, you know, how, given the diversity of uh, countries and geographies at play in this space, where, where do you find common cause? How do we move this forward? Yeah, I think from the African perspective, we have regional monetary unions, and we try to coordinate things at that level. We also have um, situations where, for instance, we have Association of African Central Bank Governors. They meet regularly to coordinate this. We have the Association of African uh, uh, Stock Exchanges. They also meet regularly. We have Association of African Pension Funds. So we have regional groups within themselves that try to coordinate this. But I don't think it serves any practical purpose to have one policy for Africa. We've always said, Africa is diverse, extremely diverse. You have the almost those you call high income to those that are the least developed that you can imagine. And so it doesn't really make sense to put all of them together, but we have workable things around us through these associations that they understand what works and what doesn't work. Great, we have other questions? Yes. The question is, uh, 
joining the first round of questions with this round. And to pose the question, if we take from what Governor Antoine mentioned about the graphs of debt and growth, global growth, slowing down, debt increasing. If we put the graph of emissions on that same picture, one would notice that emissions are still going up and way above where they should be. 2018 was a peak year, for example. So the, the graph of growth and emissions, we were hoping by greening finance and using clean technologies and the whole range of innovations we are talking about, that we will decouple growth and emissions. That is to say we might continue to have growth with much less emissions. Well, the evidence to date suggests that that's not happening. You know, evidence coming out of this book, More From Less, just written in the US, looking at the US economy, suggests that that's not happening because if you take in what they import, if you take the national data, it seems to be decoupling. If you take the overall economy, it's not. Many people have now concluded that in fact, we are not on a trajectory that will save us on time with climate change, that the worst effects are going to still hit us if we continue to solve our problems through economic growth, because we are not going to be able to decouple. I think that's where the evidence is now. So a bunch of uh, researchers are now coming to the conclusion and advocating that we have to find an alternative way of organizing our economies in which we continue to meet human needs, human development, and prosperity without growth being the fundamental objective of our economic organization. Now, that is completely contrary to what everybody in this room, I suspect, was trained in, in economics 100 or economics 500. The, the, you know, you now have a, a major book which sort of uh, didn't get much attention in 2009, but now receiving a lot of attention called Prosperity Without Growth. A leading economist out of the UK has put that out. The whole movement is growing on degrowth. So the question to the panel, I recognize that this is, uh, you know, this needs more research, it needs government action and a whole range of actors, but we all are involved in this. Is this, um, is this on your minds? Are we still hoping that we will get there on time by doing more of what we are doing now? Or are we really in a panic because the islands will go under by 2100? I mean, that's really serious stuff. And we are not doing the right stuff. Okay, so that is a very large question. Who would like to go first? Uh, Professor? Yes. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, a particular country. I don't think we need to generalize for everyone. Um, some years ago, when green growth wasn't still very popular, the African Development Bank came up with a strategy, 10-year strategy hinged on transitioning Africa to green growth. Among MDBs, it was not yet a popular issue because we felt we are a low-emitting continent. We want to remain low. We want to decouple our growth from high emissions intensity. And I think that's where we're heading to. So every of our strategy 
is geared towards that. That we know we're just a minor player. People have come to me and said, look, we need African countries to up their emissions ambitions. And I'm asking to what? Seychelles has contributed 0%, 0.0, 0.00, if you take it to two decimal points. So for us, ambition is what the African continent has set. Others should match that ambition that the entire region emits 3 4%. Then we would go into that decoupling. So what I'm trying to say, in essence, is that, yes, certain regions, like the governor said, that they want to be the uh, least... Climate resilient region. Yeah, in the in, you know, in region. So these things are happening out there. Uh, a couple of years, two years ago, actually, when you read most of the economists, most of the journals that tell you Africa rising, Africa had eight of the 10 fastest growing economies and so on. But then when you talk to climate specialists, they tell you Africa is very highly impacted and so on. So who wasn't telling the truth? So I put together the best of teams across the world, modelers on Africa's GDP, modelers on climate change, come together, give me a model that takes care of these externalities. And what we found wasn't pleasant at all, even for those high rising countries. Those countries that we're saying are rising very fast, they were not growing whatever, when you factored in climate change and all that stuff. So that's what is driving our policies in making sure that Africa remains low. We're not going to decarbonize because decarbonization tells us you've carbonized and then you're trying to decarbonize. We will not get there. Thanks. Well, I'll just say very briefly that, I mean, we've always in our region understood that economics cannot truly explain quality of life. Uh, it's an international metric that's used for comparability, and you know it is what it is. It has its limitations. I will see that as an economist, and I accept that. In the Caribbean, we've always looked at things like our pristine environment, the fact that we have clean air. We value that. Social capital, family ties, the connections that we have, those, those things are important for us uh, and will remain important. Um, so we're going to push, continue to push with, in terms of some of those green uh, renewables because we believe that's important for what we're going to do, not just for the environment, but lowering the cost of business and doing business in our region. So we have compelling reasons to continue that path. But certainly, um, I am one, I'm, I'm very interested in other other definitions that, because to be honest with you, part of the, the biggest frustration we have in our region is the over-reliance on per capita income. Because when you use that metrics, many of our countries are deemed to be middle income or high income which means they graduated from grants and concessional resources, and I make the point all the time. The hurricane in the U.S., Hurricane Katrina, 1% of U.S. GDP. Hurricane in Grenada, 204%. Dominica, 226%. Instead of mashing up a little part of a, of a big country, the whole country gets destroyed. So that metric is absurd. And to use it as a basis to determine financing is, to be honest with you, most is unacceptable. So I, I welcome that shift. But in the meantime, we are going to continue to do some of the things that we're working on. Ms. Hayat, did you want to comment on the, the prospects for this path of reconciling economic growth and green growth? No, not, not really, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I'm not convinced the, 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 the link is, is always there, but... but it, but we, we, we had to go on the, 
uh, we, we have to face the risk of climate change, mm -hmm. whether it will serve the growth of the economy. Well, so this is a question. I don't have the answer. No, that's... <laughs> um, okay, well, we're almost near uh, the end of our time. I just wanted to put one more um, issue to, to each of you, and it has a little bit to do with the Toronto Centre and the fact that it's International Development Week and... Um, and that it's 2020, and at the end of uh, this calendar year, um, there will be a Conference of the Parties 26. You referred to the uh, Marrakesh uh, COP, but there'll be COP 26. The United Kingdom has uh, put a focus on the issues around sustainable um, finance. Um, I'm wondering what you think would be a helpful outcome from a conversation, and I, you know, because the earlier question about the international engagement, and we've talked a lot about local and, and what's happening on the ground in, in particular places in the world, Africa and the Caribbean and North Africa. But how do you see um, the sustainable finance uh, issue um, and hopefully, obviously, the engagement of the business community and financial regulators is, is pretty central to that. But do you see some a roadmap going forward that can help sort of spur on the kinds of conversations that we're having today, um, things that you could point to in the future, some have pointed to the disclosure, uh, other types of initiatives that have been put out. Um, I'm just curious how you see this, uh, this area of work uh, evolving into the future. Uh, a couple of you have also mentioned the, uh, the relatively urgent need to, uh, to do some further capacity building so that our regulators and financial supervisors understand the role that climate's playing in in financial markets, um, but maybe as a closing comment, uh, put that question, but anything else you'd like to sort of uh, make as a closing comment before we wrap up this evening? Governor Antoine? Well, I'd just like to say that I, I think um, there's a lot of work for us to do in terms of building capacity to, to green the financial system and to really incorporate climate risk into risk management frameworks. And as a regulator now, uh, we are keen to make sure that, first of all, we ourselves uh, build the capacity, and that's why the partnership with Toronto Centre is so important for us. Um, so what we did last year um, really gave us a, a good jump start uh, into that area, and that allows us to build not just our internal capacity, but to then pass on to our licensees and our countries mm -hmm. that kind of capacity. Um, we're going to need technical assistance to do national risk assessments in this area, climate risk assessments. Um, so countries are doing it, but then licensees, financial institutions also need to do the same uh, to, to better understand. And then we, we, we have to, to, to really set some targets around that. So certainly what NGFS is doing, TF, in terms of disclosures, we believe more and more of that is required. And um, so I look forward to continue to work with the Toronto Centre. And that, that work is very important at this time, um, not just in the Caribbean, but I suspect around the world in developing countries. On the issue of sustainable financing, um, it would be great if we could find a way to begin this year to deliver on the Paris, uh, Paris Treaty, the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement. That is $100 billion every year for climate finance from 2020. And new money, please. <laughs> Not this repackaging and recycling. I know we believe in recycling, but when it comes to climate finance, <laughs> we new money. I'm serious. So that would be, I hope, a big focus for the upcoming COP because we have to hold people accountable. You can't just be rising emissions 
and you're not delivering on financing. So even those who are willing and want to proceed and not do not have the wherewithal, and those who can, I mean, it's, it's, it's disappointing to see in some parts of Europe, for example, that they're still investing in coal and still expanding coal. I mean, what is going on? That is the kind of... Now, if I sound anxious, it's because this is an existential threat to the region. So I cannot be a passive bystander in this, in this, in this enterprise. This is very, very important for us. But it's not just us, the region, or planet. So that is where, Christine, I'd like to see some focused attention and some results. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, that's perfect. So, Ms. Hyatt, there's your question, is where, where do you see us going? And uh, some closing thoughts on, uh, on greening finance. And where we go, uh, as the uh, governor said, we still need to, to do more, more work on capacity building and rising awareness. Uh, getting us more uh, consensus about uh, all the, the aspects of uh, green capital markets, not only in our continent, but uh, this is what we're discussing on, on the level of IOSCO among all capital markets regulators. And we need a better standardization of, uh, of all the... Uh, 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 all the definitions, and we need to to have the the same understanding of what is sustainable, what is green, on the procedures. Because, as also Governor said, we 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 still expect to get uh, through uh, partly couple of markets these the uh, uh, these investments uh, to finance our projects in the continent. Final word to you, Professor Nyong. How are you, how do you uh, leave us today in terms of your uh, your points and thoughts for uh, the road ahead on uh, on greening finance? Well, let me start by commending the Toronto Centre because it's a, it's it's an institution that we need now, considering what's happening. We slept and woke up one morning and we heard of Lehman Brothers. Many of us didn't know who they were until the economy collapsed. And I don't think we need to wait to that point. We are seeing the signals. We're heading there. We need to measure and assess and disclose this risk so that we can deal with them earlier as we move on. In terms of uh, sustainable financing, we need to have clear policies, standards, what do we need? Impact investors, I'm glad that this group of people, they are coming up now, we're seeing an increase. I think $502 billion thus far in impact investment, but that's not enough. We need to make resources available to them. And that's why I like the slogan by the British, finance, greening finance and financing green. We need to be able to create opportunities. The people that will invest in climate change will be impact investors who are not just interested in profit but want to see environmental and social impacts left behind. But the way we our banks are structured makes it very difficult. My country, Nigeria, interest rate is 30%. There's no way an impact investor will go to a commercial bank and take money at 30% to invest. What can we do? How can we create awareness for things like differential loan pricing? What sort of instruments can we create we're looking at fintech companies. How can we bring them, expand their scope more so that they can enable us to reach 
people that ought to be reached in financing. So the conversation is very important. Right now, some countries have moved on, some countries are flying, but some countries are still left behind. This is a global agenda that we need to carry everyone along. If not, those behind will drag everybody behind. Thanks. Super. Well, I think you've, you've earned your dinner, so thank you all uh, very, very much. I, I think, uh, you know, the perspectives of the Caribbean, Africa, North Africa, uh, perspectives from an MDB, from a business person in, directly in the financial sector and from our friend, the central banker, um, I think it was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and I want to thank them all very much for uh, taking the time to come to Ottawa this week and uh, and share their perspectives. and uh, And I do hope that uh, through the work of the Toronto Centre, which is, uh, I think, it's nice to hear the recognition and acknowledgement of the special place that the Toronto Centre occupies in in trying to uh, support um, countries' work in this in this space. It's a fabulous Canadian asset that uh, that we need to uh, make sure more and more people in the world are aware of. So I want to thank uh, the Toronto Centre also for uh, creating the space uh, to make this a part of the conversation this week. So thank you all very much.